about 10 years after Jesus died on the cross and ascended back to the right hand of the Father, the church was exclusively Jewish in nature. They had yet to really preach the gospel to the non-Jewish world. One day there was a Gentile military man. He was inclined towards God. He was a God-fearer. He gave alms to the people of Israel, helped build religious facilities for them, would pray, but didn't yet fully know the Lord. And one day in prayer, an angel of God appeared to him. This is in Acts chapter 10. And the angel spoke to him and gave him commands to go send some men down to a city called Joppa where a man named Peter was who would declare to him everything he needed to know. And eventually, God arranged things for Peter to get there to uh, Cornelius' home in Caesarea and to preach the everlasting gospel for the first time to the Gentile world and audience. Just an ability for a Gentile to come to Christ without first converting to Judaism, without first adopting the Israelite religious system. But when the angel came, he said Cornelius' name. He said Cornelius. And every time I read that story, I imagine a celebration in heaven. Like we have been waiting for thousands of years now for Cornelius' name to be said. God has been working this redemptive plan in the angelic realm. We can see it. We're watching it unfold. The promise is given to Adam. The promise is given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the promise has been given to David and communicated to Daniel. And now the time has come. The whole world, without the filter of the religious sacrificial system, the whole world can just know God. I just imagine the singing and the celebration and the gladness in heaven that would have been accompanied with the angel's voice, Cornelius. Like we have been waiting for this moment. You see, God is a God who does not begrudgingly enter into reconciling himself to humanity. No, he is the initiator. He is excited about it. He is joyful for it and towards it. And what I want to show you this morning is I want to show you through David's half-hearted, inadequate restoration of his son, I want to show you by way of contrast the way that God restores people to himself. I think that in this chapter, we are meant to imagine a king seated upon his throne. Part of the reason that I think that about this chapter is because in other chapters and episodes in David's life, it will say David's name over and over again. But in this chapter, his name, David, is not even mentioned one time, but 40 times. He is referred to as the king. So it seems that the author wants us to think about the kingly position of David. He is on his throne. He he has a responsibility. He could bring someone who has been, like she said, banished back to himself. And how is he going to do it? Well, 
We're going to see that he did it in a half-hearted, inadequate kind of way. But by contrast, God throws himself into the process of reconciliation to humanity. So I don't mean to scare you by what I'm about to say, but I have 12 points today. (laughs) Now, I'll just remind you that I always put my teaching outlines online on my blog at nateholdrich.com. So I'm gonna, I, all 12 of them are there right now. You could even go to it right now if you chose to, or you could check it out later. And then a lot of the cross-references that I'm going to mention to you are also there. So you can capture those later if you desire. So don't panic. Don't, don't create a fire with your pencil and your paper this morning as you're trying to write these things down. But we'll quickly go through these things. I, I wanted to title the message today, God's intentional initiation in a holy and right way with eager volunteerism at steep personal cost and hopeful of our future fruitfulness to fully, completely, and totally restore us to full access to himself following, of course, our repentance and leading to a promising future together. But it sounded a little wordy to me. So the title is, the absolute restoration of believers to God. So, number one, David did not intend to restore Absalom, but God planned to restore us. This was not David's intention. He's just cruising along. He did miss Absalom. He did long for Absalom. He was his son, after all. But he did not initiate a plan. It was not his intention. It was Joab who came into his life and through the Tekoite woman, you know, manipulated events and manipulated David's own mind until he basically walked himself into a decision. He did not intend, but God planned to restore us. I already mentioned to you the promises in the Old Testament, some of them to Adam and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, on and on, that would help us understand that this was a long, slow, deliberate plan of God to bring forth the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, he said Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this was something that God had planned, that God had organized, that God had ordered. In fact, in the Old Testament, years before crucifixion was even invented, God declared the way that his son would be crucified. That there would be the casting of lots for his garments. That there would be the beatings before going to the cross. That there would be the piercing of his side because no bones could be broken. And that he would rise from the dead on the third day. All of these things, in part at least, help us understand that God was planning and plotting this restoration of humanity to himself. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 that the Lamb... That's Jesus. He was slain from the foundation of the world. At the laying out of the cosmos, there was full understanding. Christ, the Son of God, He will come and He will suffer and He will die for a lost and broken humanity that has rebelled against God. So we must see God as a planner of our restoration. He planned it. Not only did He plan it for all of humanity, He planned it for you. He thought of you. He dreamed of the day that he would reach into your heart and bring you back to himself. Number two, others initiated 
David's restoration of Absalom. But God initiated his restoration of us. Now, this is different from planning. You see, God planned, but not only did he plan, he also became the initiator in the event. He didn't just set the plan in stone and then wait for us to initiate and engage with himself. He planned, but then also initiated. David would not do this. David waited for Absalom. He waited for Joab. He had to wait for this Tekka white woman and this whole manipulative scene to unfold. He waited, but God initiates his restoration of us. Think of these verses that make all the sense to every believer from 1 John chapter 4. It says in 1 John 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then later in verse 19, John writes, We love because he first loved us. We all feel this way. We all understand this, right? That God loved us. That God desired us. That God longed for us. That he sent his son. We love him, if we do today, because he first loved us. He initiated. Number three, David's restoration of Absalom ignored justice, but God's restoration of us is holy and right. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. You see, this woman had to go through a lot of convincing to get David to ignore part of God's law. You see, the people of Israel had governing laws and regulations like any civilized society. And one of the things that was there was that you, you weren't actually to take matters into your own hands. You know, some, somebody kills somebody, you just decide to go out by yourself and execute vengeance or judgment upon them. This was the king's job. There was a process in store. The elders of the land were to be involved. And so it was possible, like she said with her story, with her fictitious son who had died. She says, look, no one's going to hold you guiltless. And so David, in a sense, to bring Absalom back, there's part of this where he had to turn a blind eye. I know as we watched what Absalom did last, last week, there was probably part of us that said, yeah, it serves Amnon right. He had it coming in his life. But that was not supposed to be the order of the way that that discipline or judgment took place. David should have been involved. It was not Absalom's place. That was pure brotherly vengeance in a sense. And so David had to set aside justice in order to bring Absalom home. But you see, when God brings us home, he does not set aside justice. He does not set aside holiness and what is right and what is true. No, he takes it into his own body because Christ came and when he suffered and died upon the cross, he took our guilty conviction into his own body. You could not do that for another human being. I could not do that for another human being. But since God is the one who was demanding the justice, he could decide how the justice could be absolved. And Jesus took it into his own body. So it becomes really, in a sense, the cross, the most loving, gracious place in all of human history, but also the most fair and the most just place in all of human history because every crime was being punished there, and Jesus took it into his body. It says in Romans 3, verse 26, that when Jesus came on the cross, he became just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
He was doing something so just there upon the cross, and he also became our justifier. Psalm 85 verse 10 describes the cross like this, the place where steadfast love and faithfulness meet, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. You just see the ultimate expression of God's holiness combined with God's love there upon that cross. Number four, David's restoration of Absalom remembered Absalom's sin, but God forgets our sin. You see, when David brought Absalom in, what was the first thing that he said to Joab? You know, he's like, okay, fine. You can have your way, but he needs to live in a house, uh, and he can't see me. Yeah, everybody's going to know that, yeah, I let him come back, but also that I think he is so guilty. Everybody's going to know that I did not approve of his behavior. Everybody is going to know, and he is going to know, that I think he was a sinful, guilty man. But when God comes along to restore us, he actually forgets our sin. It says in Hebrews 40, excuse me, Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 8, verse 12, God says, I will remember their sins no more. Now, this is a beautiful truth, right? That God does not, chooses not to remember the sins of his people. It's a a fascinating thing, by the way. I mean, we're seeing it actually in living color in the life of David. Because he went through this terrible sin that he committed. He came under the divine hand of judgment and consequences from his Father in heaven. Yet in the midst of all of it, Nathan the prophet told him, God has put away your sin. Somehow, as God's children, we are able to come under the chastening hand of a loving father who chooses in the midst of administering his discipline into our lives not to remember our sin. It's a wild thing. I'm a dad. I don't understand it. I don't know how that works. There are times I have to administer some discipline. It's very hard to simultaneously forget the sin that got them into the discipline in the first place. But God is able to do it. He puts his sin away from us. He remembers it no more. Number five, David was reluctant to restore Absalom, but God was eager to restore us. Don't you get this in this whole story? I mean, he he longed for Absalom, but a whole lot of arm twisting involved to get it to take place. And it was so slow. It took years for restoration to happen. I want to say full restoration to happen, but I don't even think that really occurred in this passage. It just took years, you know, this long, slow process. It's, it's almost shocking in a sense. This man that was forgiven so much by God, so slow to forgive his son. It just took a long time. There was a lot of reluctance there in David's heart. But God is not like David. He does not demonstrate that same spirit. No, he's not reluctant to restore people to himself. He is eager to do it. Jesus actually taught about this to a group of people specifically who thought that God would be very reluctant to reconcile the people. In fact, they probably thought he was so reluctant to reconcile the people that he never reconciled the people. 
The Pharisees thought that you had to live a life of perfection before God. Prove yourself to God, and then God will accept you. Then God will embrace you. I doubt they'd even say, then God would love you. One day, Jesus was hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. He was teaching them and instructing them. They were being forgiven and cleansed and learning a new way of life. And the Pharisees began to say amongst themselves, who is this man who is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They just couldn't believe it. And so Jesus told them, this is how Luke says it, a parable. But when he told them a parable, it had three parts. In the first part of the parable, it was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. And one sheep was lost. And so he took the 99, kept them in the pen or left them with another and went out and searched high and low for that one lost sheep. And when he found that sheep, he rejoiced, he delighted. And Jesus said, and so it is in heaven, when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice with great celebration. In the second part of Jesus' parable, he said there was a woman who had 10 coins. One coin was lost, and so she cleaned her whole house. She swept. She searched high and low looking for that one lost coin. And when she found it, she delighted. She rejoiced. And so it is in heaven when one lost sinner repents and returns to God. And then in his last story, he'd gone from 100 sheep to 10 coins to two sons. And he said that there was a son who went to his father before his father's time to die. And he said, Father, give me my inheritance early. You're as good to me as dead. I want my inheritance. I want to go do what I want to do. I want to leave your family. I want to leave your home. I want to be separated from you. And the father gave him the inheritance. And the son went away and he uh, lived a wild life and spent everything that he had until the point that he got himself into such poverty that he was working for a pig farmer wishing he could eat the food that had been allotted to the swine. Finally, he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad and I'll tell my father, Father, I do not deserve to be your son, but would you hire me? Could I be your slave? Could I be your servant? Could I live in your quarters? Could you give me a wage? Could I, could I be here inside of this household in that way? And he returned to his father, rehearsing and practicing the speech. But before he had a chance to say the speech, the father saw him on the horizon a great ways away and ran to his son. That image was shocking to the Pharisees. Because in that era, if you were an older man with a lot of possessions and a household and a staff and all of that, you did not run. And not only did you not run, they never thought of God as running to anyone. But in the story, the father takes the fatted calf and kills it, puts a garment on his son, puts a ring upon his finger and restores him fully into the family. The story was meant to illuminate the hearts of the Pharisees because they were like the older brother who sat there saying, how could these people be allowed to return? But he also was doing it to illuminate the heart of God who is eager to be restored to a lost and broken humanity. Number six, David was obligated to restore Absalom but God volunteered himself to restore us. You see, David worked his way into a corner with his words. Have you ever been guilty of this? 
you just keep talking and talking and talking until finally it's like, oh no, now I have to do something that I didn't really want to do. Why did I volunteer for that? Why did I fumble my name down there? You know, kind of thing. And David became obligated to bring Absalom home, but God was not obligated. God volunteered himself in the form of God the Son to to make a way for us to be restored to himself. Philippians 2 verse 5 tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He volunteered himself. He made the decision, I will go. I will work this process of reconciliation with a lost humanity. Number seven, David's restoration of Absalom cost little but God's restoration of us was costly. I mean, think about this with me for a second. What did it really cost David to bring Absalom home? You know, it was just a couple of words. Absalom already had a home there in Jerusalem, so it's not like David is providing him a brand new home. Remember earlier in David's life, he found uh, one of Saul's relatives, Mephibosheth, and he, you know, blessed him, brought him in, paid for his meal, gave him a new place to live, did all this stuff. It was, it was rather costly to care for Mephibosheth, but really not the same for his relationship with Absalom. He just said a few words, brought him back in, all of that. It cost little. Even his own reputation, he thought, was being preserved. He wasn't paying anything in his reputation to have people look at him and say, man, look at this guy. He's too loose with judgment and justice. He's way too forgiving. No, he didn't even have that price to pay because he kept his son at a distance. But God's restoration of us was costly. It cost him deeply in that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The blood of Christ being spilled was the greatest price that could ever be paid for you and for me. Number eight. Now, just to remind you, we have 12, so just I don't want you to panic too much. Number eight, David's restoration of Absalom led to disloyalty, but God's restoration of us should result in loyalty, obedience, and fruitfulness. The author hints at this in the way he tells the story. You see, after Absalom comes back to Jerusalem and is in his own house, there's a physical description of Absalom. You know, it talks about how he's uh, handsome from head to toe. There's no blemish on his whole body. You know, he's just a good-looking person. And uh, even his children were really good-looking. It was just one of those families, you know, where it's like, you know, just, man, these people belong in a magazine, you know, kind of thing. And not only that, but there was kind of this vain thing that he, it's like he, he not only was really handsome, but he like knew he was really handsome. Because every year or so, he'd have like a hair cutting ceremony. His hair, he just had a beautiful mane, you know, like other men were jealous. There was no Rogaine involved at all, you know. He just looking really good. And he would cut his hair and they'd actually weigh the hair. You know, like, that's so impressive. That's a lot of hair. They'd weigh the hair. Kind of, they kind of became like a thing. I wonder if he like had like an Evite list. You know, like, come to my hair cutting party, you know, kind of thing. And all of that was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing of what would come. Because he fell in love with himself. He was one of those men. He fell in love with himself. And by falling in love with himself, he thought that he should lead Israel. And so he conspired to steal the kingdom from his father. 
And it was a terrible trial in David's life. This is a foreshadowing of that. That description of Absalom, it's, it's kind of giving you a little hint like, oh man, storm clouds are coming. Especially if you know what you know about the people of Israel. Because they had, there was a little danger in their hearts for outwardly attractive leaders. I mean, Saul was, had a same, similar kind of description. And they fell head over heels in love with Saul. And he ended up being a terrible leader for them. And so this is, this is ominous. It helps us understand, oh yeah, what's coming from Absalom is disloyalty. But when God restores us, what should result is not disloyalty, but loyalty, obedience, and fruitfulness. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. He said, Jesus died for all, that those who live might, listen to this, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, an an appropriate understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ helps us to come to the understanding or the, the reality that he shed his blood for me. If he did all this for me, if he put his spirit inside of me, if he secured for me an, an eternal home and, and restoration with God, if I'm going to enjoy him forever, if he's done all this for me, and, and then not only that in the future, but right now he's walking with me and I am in fellowship with him and, and I have full access to God. If that's what he did for me, then I will not repay him with disloyalty, but with loyalty with obedience, and with a life of fruitfulness. I'm not to live my life any longer for myself, but everything I do in my work and in my play and in my friendships and in my family, I'm to do it for Him, in honor of Him, in respect of Him, who for my sake died and was raised. Number nine, David's restoration of Absalom was partial, but God's restoration of us is full and complete. You know, there's the whole thing there, two years. I'm sure it didn't really feel to Absalom after a couple of years, like, you know who loves me? My dad loves me. No, he was there, banished still. Could have been out in Geshur. In fact, he actually says that to Joab, right? You know, like, I could have been in Geshur still. Remember, he was the grandson of the king of Geshur. David had married the princess of Geshur. And so, he, you know, in, in Geshur, he's a king's grandson in Jerusalem. He's a king's son, but man, it sure doesn't feel like it. You see, David's restoration of Absalom was partial, but God brings us all the way back to himself. There are no degrees of separation between us and himself. It is either separated or together. That's all there is. Any sin, even one small sin that is still attached to our record separates us from a holy and righteous God. The chasm is far too great. But when a person believes in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed, deposited, accounted to them. So that the Father sees not you and your righteousness or me and my righteousness or lack thereof. What he sees is the righteousness of his own Son. That means that we get to come all the way back to him. It says in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, the part of Jesus' mission was that he might bring us to God. And that is what he has done by his blood. He has brought us all the way back to God. It is amazing to me how often believers do not understand this. They think, well, I've been forgiven a little bit, but I've got to kind of work my way up to being in real relationship with God. 
No, the reality is, covered by the blood of Jesus, your restoration is full and complete and total. Number 10, David's restoration of Absalom required drastic measures to gain a conversation. But God's restoration of us provides us with easy access to himself. Now, what do I mean by that? You guys all laughed at it when we read it in the passage, right? We got to that point where Absalom, after a couple of years living in Jerusalem, he's like, hey, man, I, I, this isn't right. I need to see my father. I need to have restoration. I need to be admitted again into the king's court. So he's like, yeah, look, Joab's the one who brought me back here from Geshur. So he sends for Joab. No response. Sends for Joab again. No response. So instead he says, all right, what I'll do is I'll light Joab's field on fire. So he lights the field on fire. Joab looks out. He's like, my barley, what is going on? Rumor spreads. Oh, that was Absalom that started that fire. It was his, we saw his servants kind of milling about. They had like gas cans and stuff like that, you know? So it was Absalom. So Joab goes to Absalom. What's the deal? You know, why did you do that? Well, you know, you, I sent for you twice. You wouldn't respond. So I said to myself, what do I got to do to be able to talk to Joab? Light his field on fire? Then I had a good idea. There was a law involved for Absalom to get an audience with David. But when God restores us, we are given unlimited, full, complete, total access and audience with the living God. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, that we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And not only do we have the access, but did you know that God has designed regeneration in such a way that not only would a believer have full access, but he would put inside of us an engine that would drive us toward that throne of grace, to take that access. That engine is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans chapter 8 tells us that, and he causes us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. In other words, there is this Godward direction of a believer's heart that did not come from the believer, but it is coming from the Holy Spirit of God Himself living inside of this new man or this new woman. You see, God wants this. He wants this connection. He provides us with that full and easy access to Himself. Number 11. Repentance did not precede David's restoration of Absalom but God's restoration of us does. Absalom did not behave at all like a man who felt any guilt whatsoever. He did not behave like a man who thought that he was wrong for taking vengeance into his own hands. He seems to have felt justified in it, right in it. And later in his life, as you watch his life, it appears that he's a man who thinks that he's above reproach, that there is nothing in his life that is worthy of correction. But when God restores us, repentance is part of the requirement. You see, Jesus came along and he repeated what John the Baptist preached. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the gospel tells us that Christ suffered and died for our sin that he paid the price for us upon the cross, and that he rose from the grave, that if we believe in what he did in substituting himself for us, that we would have life. So it is almost impossible, I think probably 
biblically, theologically impossible for a person to believe in the gospel in a faith-filled kind of way, saving faith kind of way, without first an attitude of repentance. Because an appropriate understanding of the gospel dictates and says, my sin put Jesus upon that cross. So I want to repent, turn from, head in the opposite direction of my sin that he had to die and suffer for in such a gruesome and terrible kind of way. Absalom did not repent, but God's restoration of us includes repentance. All right, number 12. You've been a good class today, everybody. Here's our last one. David's restoration of Absalom had an ominous future, but God's restoration of us includes a promising future. There's something about the the last scene where finally Absalom comes before David. You got to see what it looks like in your mind's eye. I mean, this is no typical father, son, haven't seen each other for five years, love each other, are so glad that they're restored. This is no Luke 15 prodigal son kind of experience. It's very cool. There's, There's ice in the air. And Absalom bows down to the ground to be restored to his father. He bows down to the ground. He's on the earth. There's no, son, get up. Come on. We're one together. We're family. There's none of that. There's a kiss. Feels very royal. Feels very superficial and very technical. Technically, me and Absalom are one, David might say. And all of that was like a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Absalom. I think this event Not just that day, but the few years leading up to this event, I think it went down into his soul like a seed that began to germinate and grow. And it bore the fruit that comes from bitterness. He rebelled against his father. He was successful, actually, for a time in stealing the kingdom from his father. He lashed out at this, this man. The restoration that David gave to him, it had an ominous overtone. It's like, man, something bad is going to happen here between David and Absalom. But when God restores us, there is the hope, not of an ominous future, but a promising future. John speaks of the day in his letter in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, he speaks of the day that when Jesus appears, Here's one of the things that happens. A lot of people want to know what's going to happen. What's it going to be like when we are reunited fully and completely like that eternally with God? And there's a lot of things I don't know about that. There's a lot of things I don't think our human brains can conceive of or imagine. There's a lot that we can know from Scripture. But one thing that we do know is this. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 oh man, I can't wait to be like Jesus. can't wait to be like Jesus. Everybody in my life, everybody that I know in my life is rooting for that day to come. They all want me to be like Jesus. They're all wanting that. They're all desiring that. They're all, you know, oh, please, Lord, help him become more like Jesus. And one day, their prayers are going to be totally answered. It's beautiful. 
We're going to meet the Lord face to face, and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So this is David's restoration of Absalom contrasted with God's restoration of us. David was on that side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross. Your homework for this week, you didn't know you had homework in this church, your homework this week is to read, a, read the book of Philemon in the Bible. It's one of the 66 books of the Bible. Read the book of Philemon. You say, a whole book? I've got to read a whole book of the Bible this week. It's one chapter. Okay, it's a very short book. And in that book, it is a personal letter from Paul the Apostle to a man named Philemon who had been cheated and lied to and stolen from by a, an employee named Onesimus who ran away to Rome and got lost with lots of other fugitives and eventually heard the gospel and got saved and came into Paul's life who was imprisoned in Rome at the time. And he became a real servant to the church. And one day Paul unearthed Onesimus' backstory and said, I know Philemon. You need to go back and be reconciled to him. And the letter is a letter from Paul to Philemon saying, forgive Onesimus. Bring him into your house like a brother. And so in that story, we get the opposite of David with Absalom. We get the way that we're to do it in our modern time and era. So I'd encourage you to check it out. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.